Welcome to Physicians of the Beaten Path, a podcast where we've set out to bust the myth that physicians cannot venture outside the traditional clinical or research career paths. My name is Alex. I'm an MD and a Harvard MBA, finishing up a master's at Stanford and a computer science PhD at Oxford, and I'm interested in healthcare investing and entrepreneurship. My name is Shad, and I'm an MD and Harvard MBA interested in healthcare investing and innovation. Our guest today is Leo Anthony Celli. He is a principal research scientist at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, a clinical research director at the Laboratory of Computational Physiology, and a staff physician at the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. As a clinical research director and a principal scientist at the MIT Lab of Computational Physiology, he brings together clinicians and data scientists to support research using data routinely collected in intensive care units. His group built and maintains the MIMIC database, which is one of the largest uh, publicly accessible de-identified electronic health record databases. It is an unparalleled research resource. Over 2,000 investigators from more than 30 countries have free access to the clinical data under the data use agreement. Leo holds an MPH in Clinical Effectiveness from the Harvard University School of Public Health, a Master's in Biomedical Informatics from MIT, and an MD from the University of Philippines. Leo, it's amazing to have you on the podcast. Welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Fantastic. I'm really excited about this conversation. Uh, Leo, you know, the first time that I came across your work was during my first year at Oxford when I did a project on open source electronic health records. My supervisor then recommended reading a book called Global Health Informatics, which really ended up being foundational in my decision to do a PhD in the space of computer science and healthcare machine learning. And so I'm really excited about this conversation and to have you on. You know, you've had a tremendously impactful career and covering all of it in one question or interview is going to be a hard task, but let's try to get to the bullet points if we can. So to put things into perspective for our audience, can you tell us a bit about your background, your childhood years, and why you decided to go to medical school in the first place, and why you decided to venture off the beaten path and develop a career in research and global health as well. So I was born and raised in Manila, Philippines. I went to medical school there. Um, My mom and later on my siblings and all my cousins were nurses. Uh, Nursing is perhaps one of the more um, secure occupation to uh, be able to afford to take your children to good uh, education um, and for that reason, I'm a little uh, slanted towards healthcare, even from the very start. Uh, my family ended up moving to the United States uh, when I was in high school, but uh, I decided to stay on and continued my education uh, there in the Philippines for fear of accruing some student loans in the process of uh, pursuing medicine here in the U.S. Um, but I went to medical school there, came to the United States for residency and fellowship, um, started with internal medicine at Cleveland Clinic, and then uh, did a 
specialty training in infectious diseases at the Harvard program, um, and then moved to Stanford to do my critical care medicine training, and then joined a startup company after uh, the ICU training at Stanford, moved to Baltimore, uh, and uh, joined this startup called VisiQ, which provided tele-ICU services. Uh, It came out of Johns Hopkins. And then I saw Lord of the Rings and decided to pack my bags and went to New Zealand. And initially I was planning to work there for a couple of years, but I ended up staying for five years, even got my permanent residency when I was there and got to vote uh, in, in, in the elections there because permanent residents are allowed to vote in New Zealand. And then uh, I decided to go back and have some formal training in informatics as well as data science. So uh, I packed my bags, uh, went back to Boston and did a master's in uh, biomedical informatics at MIT um, and and discovered a loophole uh, that allowed me to enroll at the School of Public Health to do a master's in public health uh, at no cost. So I was able to do two master degrees and uh, not have to worry about tuition. And then I've stayed here in Boston since finishing in 2010. Leo, that's wonderful. Your trajectory reminds me of one of the ideas that we discussed in a prior episode where, you know, most of the innovation, it comes from the intersection of different disciplines. And it seems that you were able to spend kind of your time part in clinical training, part in informatics, part in startups. And so it's really lovely to see that kind of diversity of experience. And I was wondering if that was your experience as well. And perhaps how were you able to act as a translator between those different domains? You know, you've had the clinical background as one of your kind of solid aspects of training, but how were you able to kind of translate that clinical experience across the different career experiences that you've had until this point? I mean, you, you bring up a, a great point. Uh, it is important for us to get exposed to as many uh, perspectives as possible. Uh, if you remain a uh, 100% clinician, then chances are you're only going to interact and hear the perspectives of your fellow clinicians And for the most part, you think alike. So the way you look at problems will be very similar to each other. And the potential solutions that you can come up with are also likely going to be very much overlapping. So the idea here is to uh, really interface with other uh, people with different backgrounds, different lived experiences, different expertise. And as you mentioned, disruption usually comes from adjacent possibilities. You don't know really what is possible unless you get exposed to people who are sort of on the edge of what you're doing. And then you get to explore and flesh out possible uh, solutions to the problems that you have. You discuss it, get their perspective. So I think it definitely helped me uh, working with engineers as I was part of the startup in, in Baltimore, working with hardware and software people We are trying to design a system that would allow a team to oversee the care of peripheral ICUs. And that would mean 
50 to 100 uh, ICU patients. And of course, in clinical medicine, there's no way to be able to do that. So we have to uh, develop some algorithms that will uh, enable a, an ICU team to provide a second pair of eyes for patients who are in ICUs where they do not have uh, ICU specialists uh, in the evening or even during the daytime. And then even when I'm in academia now, uh, I deliberately, we deliberately reach out to people outside of the clinical healthcare arena. Uh, we work with art students. We work with a lot of social scientists, uh, especially here at MIT. There are so many groups who are doing very interesting work. And it may not be... Uh, obvious why we would talk to each other in the beginning. Like, for example, we were in the Sensible CT lab just the other week, and they have this project looking at wastewater analysis uh, at the superficial level. Like, why would we be talking to them? Uh, but even during that conversation, we were able to start identifying potential areas where we could collaborate. And their perspectives are very different from ours, and it really helps us in terms of shaping the solutions that we could come up with together. Yeah, Leo, that's a very powerful point. And I think it links to my next question. You know, in a paper you've published a few years ago, there is an interesting quote that stuck with me, beginning of quote, for a true data revolution to occur in healthcare, we must become better at sharing and integrating data, greater emphasis on collaboration outside the traditional multidisciplinary realm and into the engineering, mathematical and computer sciences will help us achieve this, end of quote. You've also said before that the most pressing problems in being able to move the field of machine learning and AI in healthcare is not technology, but social and political factors. You know, you've been foundational in the space of healthcare machine learning, and you've seen it evolve from the start. So I'd love to hear your thoughts and if you can elaborate more on the statement of the social and political factors, and perhaps mention which social and political factors we have already overcome when it comes to healthcare machine learning, and which ones we still need to overcome for healthcare machine learning to reach its full potential. So one thing that we've realized really maybe in the last, I would say five years, is that healthcare is not ready for AI. Maybe the world is not ready for AI. Um, and I know that I've gotten pushback when I say that. I'm not saying that we should stop. I just say that we have to be more careful, more thoughtful about how we proceed. But the, the biggest topic right now in machine learning in healthcare is that if we are using real-world data to develop our algorithms, then chances are our algorithms uh, contain all the implicit biases that, um, that caregivers have. Uh, it it reflects all the disparities and inequities that are present in the real world data. So it's not surprising if the algorithms that we have now are only bound to perpetuate and even magnify the outcome disparities that we see. Um, accuracy is the way we evaluate machine learning algorithms, but if we do that, that then we're doomed. Because if our ground truth is not fair, then whatever algorithms that we develop will simply uh, legitimize and even scale the deployment of these implicit biases. 
So um, 2016 is when that investigative report from ProPublica was published, where they found that this algorithm that is being used by judicial courts across the United States are biased against Blacks and Hispanics when deliberating on whether they should receive parole or not, in deliberating what bail should be set. And since 2016, we have not made any progress in terms of how do we prevent algorithms from uh, reflecting our own biases and perpetuating the inequities that we see. So uh, people have this notion that if we have enough data, if we have data representing everyone, including the marginalized groups, then we're good to go. We throw all that data into some auto uh, encoder or transformer. We look at the associations and voila, we now have the capability to predict, uh, to identify people who will benefit from certain interventions. But of course, that's not the case. Machine learning has to have a causal framework. We have to guarantee that the way computers are making decisions are better than the way humans are making decisions because the way we make decisions um, is rife with our own personal prejudices, societal biases. So somehow we need to teach the computer not to learn that, to only learn the the good decisions, the objective decisions, the the decisions that are not tainted by our own uh, subjectivity. And no one knows how to do that at this point. So to me, this is where the machine learning community should go is, one, can we identify all the biased decisions in a data set? And then once we've done that, we still don't know what's the next step. Do we remove them from the data set or do we adversarially change those data points. Maybe we change the zip code of someone who is applying for a bank loan so that the algorithm looks at other relevant features and not the zip code to make that decision. But we're still at our nascency in terms of what we need to do to really um, harness and leverage the value that we could get from all the data as well as from all these machine learning technologies that are becoming more available to us. And somehow we need to shepherd the machine learning community to not just focus on accuracy as the way to evaluate algorithms. So just because an algorithm is is really accurate, does not mean that we should implement it. If that algorithm is going to uh, worsen disparities, then I say we should stop. Uh, If it's only benefiting a certain fraction or proportion of the population, then it needs to be calibrated. And the other important thing to emphasize is that, and I've said this over and over again, algorithms should not be treated as end products. So the way that the healthcare system is designed right now is we evaluate drugs, we evaluate medical device. Once they are approved, that's the end of the, of the game. But algorithms need to be continuously monitored and recalibrated because we know that there will be data set shifts. We know that there will be calibration drifts. And we won't be able to recalibrate that if the algorithms are proprietary, right? So who is who's going to be in charge of that recalibration? The vendor said, no, we're not in charge. It will be up to the healthcare organizations. But 
The healthcare organizations cannot do that if the algorithms are black box and proprietary. So we're in a crossroads right now. And this is why I said that to me, open data science uh, should be at the core of how we proceed. Uh, We need to have the data analyzed by as many pairs of eyes with different expertise, with different perspectives and lived experiences. Because one team alone, it's impossible for that team to be able to really say whether there's going to be unintended consequences once that algorithm is developed, validated, and then deployed. So to us, uh, the mimic way, which is getting the, the data into the hands of as many uh, students, as many investigators, whether they're from industry, whether they're from academia, is the way to go. And you create this collaborative ecosystem around the data. We could build up on each other's work. We could quality check each other's work, uh, make sure that um, the analysis and the assumptions are correct. And again, emphasize that the data scientists have to work with not just the clinicians, but also the social scientists, because this concept of bias is very complicated. Like clinicians and data scientists alone cannot fix this. Um, the problems of healthcare are problems of poverty. And just coming up with some algorithms and thinking that it will transform healthcare, to me, that's what I call AI, arrogant and ignorant. And, and that's not the way we want to proceed. I really like that, Um, the AI, the (laughs) abbreviation that you mentioned. I think, Leo, I absolutely agree. And I think it's very problematic that we're stuck in a very inefficient and incorrect way of evaluating machine learning algorithms. And I think kind of to the point that you've mentioned that we shouldn't look at ML algorithms as drugs or as devices that can make decisions on their own, I'm I'm just reminded of one of the principles that the good machine learning practices guiding principles from the FDA mentioned, which is we need to look at human AI teams and basically evaluate them as a joint correlator and, and looking basically how the decisions of the algorithm would influence the decision of the clinician. And that decision of the clinician is what we should evaluate at the end, because that's going to be the decision that would impact the patient. I think one piece of your work that's really interesting to me here is the paper that you've done on generalizability. And it seems that, you know, also the field of healthcare machine learning has been stuck in broadly insisting on generalizability and external validation, meaning that, you know, we've been stuck in this approach where we have a specific training data set and then we have all the data that's outside that training data set. And we say that, okay, we train on this training data set. And then if we do external validation on one data set, we can say that our model is externally validated and it's generalizable. And the reality is that's absolutely not true to the reasons that you've mentioned in terms of the distribution shifts and data shifts that happen over time, geography facilities. And so I think it would be really exciting to look at kind of scalable implementation methodologies that rely on, on a lot of the concepts that you've mentioned in terms of open AI and that allow us to scale models despite distribution shifts that happen across facilities and time and geography. And this is something that I'm kind of working on with my supervisor in the UK, Professor David Clifton and Nijam Shah and Tina Bussard from Stanford. So kind of love to take that conversation offline, but I really enjoyed your perspectives here. I want to shift gears a little bit to global health. 
you know, there's a lot of gaps in medical knowledge that come from excluding the majority of the world's population from healthcare research. There are also massive gaps in terms of medical technologies and healthcare data that come from the exclusion of the same population. And those gaps are widening in a very rapid rate. So I'd love to understand, Leo, from your extensive experience in the space, what would be the roadmap and the vision that you'd be thinking about in how low-middle-income countries globally can be included in the healthcare informatics and data ecosystem? I know there has been some work done with open source electronic medical records like OpenMRS and Bomini, but it seems that it's not nearly enough. So would love to hear your thoughts. One thing that we have been promoting and what we have been trying to do is to convince our colleagues in low- and middle-income countries um, that they are perfectly um, capable of creating and validating their own medical knowledge system. So as we know, the way uh, medicine is being practiced around the world is informed by treatment guidelines that come from American Heart Association or the European Diabetes Society And those guidelines are informed by research performed on those rich countries. And in those rich countries, we also know that a majority of the participants are white individuals. Uh, It's seldom that there would be uh, adequate representation of the ones who are marginalized uh, among the population. And we need to really overhaul that system. Uh, we think that that has contributed to disparities in outcomes. Um, designing medicine just around a majoritized few is clearly a problem, uh, an issue that we've dealt with since the history of medicine. Um, and in the past, it's very difficult to um, revamp the biomedical research um, enterprise because clinical trials, um, as well as observational studies, are easier uh, performed in rich countries. Uh, But now with digitalization of healthcare, there is now data that is being uh, accumulated, even in limited resource settings. So now there's an opportunity for them to really take the helm and find out what are the best tests and treatments uh, that are... uh, that should be given to their own population rather than adopting the treatment guidelines from the United States or from Germany or the UK. The issue is that there's no capacity. So research is still seen as a luxury in most uh, resource-limited countries. They think that only rich countries can afford research, and therefore it is not our job to contribute and even be custodians of the medical knowledge system. And we're trying to convince them that, well, if that is your uh, mindset, then there's no hope for for us, for the rest of the world, that we're always going to be having these gaps in understanding of health and disease. We're always not going to be uh, trying to generalize our, the findings of research from a few countries to the rest of the world, and we're going to be stuck. But now there's this tremendous opportunity to, uh, again, get everyone on the table. We keep, uh, one of my favorite saying is that if you're not on the table, you're probably on the menu. So we need to bring in our colleagues from low and middle income countries on the table 
so that they are more accountable, they are more in charge of what tests and treatments they should be providing to their own uh, population. But it's, it's much easier said than done. Uh, academia has been, as you know, very exclusive in the past. And I think this has enabled uh, the, what we are seeing now is the exclusivity of academia. Um, in, in the previous century, most of the academics are white male professors. And it's no surprise that what we're finding would be best tests and treatments for white individuals. So definitely there's a lot of momentum now uh, to diversify those at the table, to diversify the research community. And we think that this is definitely going to be the, uh, the turning point in, in the way we create and validate medical knowledge. So overall, I am very optimistic that finally we're moving in the right direction. I think the stars are aligning and there's definitely more incentives and more motivation to make the research community as diverse and as inclusive as possible. Leo, that's a great point. And I think I just want to reflect a little bit on the capacity perspective that you've mentioned. And I think it massively applies to research. I mean, I remember when I was kind of doing studying medicine back in Syria, I had no one of my professors ever published a paper. And so essentially like a couple of colleagues and myself wanted to publish a paper. And then like we had to find the only person in the country who's published an internationally recognized journal and, and convince them to work with us. So building these capacity is something that is immensely important. And, you know, I'm optimistic with like the increasing availability of information through online and, and kind of internet and open source educational resources that some of these issues would be addressed. But that's super exciting conversation and I really enjoyed it. And I'm going to hand over the mic to my colleague Chad for a couple of questions from his end. Over to you, Chad. Thank you, Alex. And, and thank you again, Leo, for this, you know, really invigorating conversation. I'm, I'm learning a lot. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, technology and burnout. And what I mean by that is, you know, we sort of spent some time during this chat talking about AI and how we can use AI in service of patients and, and humanity rather than just AI for AI's sake. Alex and I think a lot about this with our startup. We want to do all of the cutting edge stuff with AI, but Ultimately, it has to service one of the main stakeholders in the healthcare system, whether it's patients or providers or other stakeholders. Many of our guests, Leo, who sort of developed or work with cutting-edge technology in medicine say that one of the main values of medtech and AI is to sort of relieve the incredible load put on doctors regarding you know, tasks that may not necessarily bring value to the patient. But that can also take up, you know, a lot of time and work. And it's been widely reported that burnout amongst providers is incredibly, incredibly high. For example, you can look at EHR. EHR was brought in and it was supposed to be this, you know, fix everything solution, but it did work in some ways, but it also increased burnout for a lot of providers. And so how do we ensure that these cutting edge technologies that we're bringing in, whether it's AI related or clinical decision support tools are used in support and service of patients and providers and, and clinicians rather than increasing administrative burden for them? Um, I think that technology should not be used as a Band-Aid. What that means is that you have to have a profound understanding of the problem. 
And it's almost like you need to start from a clean slate in terms of redesigning what we do on a day-to-day basis. So just removing or automating some bits and pieces is probably not going to move the needle. It's probably not going to address burnout. Uh, But somehow there has to be not an incremental, but a disruptive redesign of what we do. So over time, we keep adding tasks. Our solution when we discover a problem is to add more tasks without removing the tasks that are unnecessary. Um, I I remember a friend uh, quoting this, uh, this line from the military, if someone craps in his pants, everyone now has to wear a diaper. So it's the same thing with medicine. When we find something problematic, we add more tasks to address that. And over time, there's accretion of tasks and somehow we're reaching a, a breaking point. We just can't do it. We're being redlined uh, for the most part until we break. And somehow what we need to do is to start from scratch, redesign everything that we're doing. Uh, what are the tasks that are truly adding value to uh, patient outcomes? And if they're not, and, and that's not an easy thing to do. So trying to figure that out, uh, we are not systems engineers by nature or by training. Uh, doctors and nurses, um, we need to work with industrial engineers and human factors engineers. And uh, there's also still so much gaps in our understanding of health and disease to be able to uh, start from a clean slate. But we have to do it. Otherwise, as they, they are predicting that even up to at least 50% of the workforce are going to be quitting in the next two to five years, and we're going to be in a critical shortage of healthcare providers. Um, We're not seeing a lot of that redesigning the clinical workflow. Um, It's definitely uh, not within our expertise right now on how to do that. We're actually working on uh, coming up with a review article of what's been published in the area of redesigning clinical workflow and try to identify some best practices and try to come up with some recommendations. But this is a a new area. There's not a lot of research that's been done, but everyone keeps saying it. It sounds so great, (laughs) redesigning the clinical workflow, but no one is really giving a cookbook on how exactly do you do that when, in fact, we still don't know so much about health and disease. Uh, we, we, we think we do, though. Uh, but in, in reality, the, the more experience that you get is, as a doctor, as a nurse, the more you realize that we don't know squat. Uh, we're, we're guessing all the time. And we're just lucky that the body has an amazing capacity to get better no matter what we do to it. And we take credit if the, body, if, if the patient gets better. And then if the patient does not get better, we say that we've done everything and uh, the technology that we have right now wouldn't have altered the outcome of that patient. But I think um, we need to bring in more talent. We need to bring in more perspective on exactly how do we do that uh, clinical workflow redesign. And that's something that I'm really interested in. That's something that we're really looking into, but we need more people. Uh, Maybe some of the machine learning um, community should could also help us in this uh, particular uh, research uh, avenue. 
because clinicians alone um, will not be able to do this redesign. Uh, we're so entrenched in the system right now, it's very hard to think outside the box of whether uh, we, do we really need to, to perform this task or not. Yeah, Leo, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, I'm thinking back to some of the classes that I took in business school, and, and we talked a lot, even in our healthcare classes, we talked a lot about the Toyota principles or principles from, you know, manufacturing that were imported and, and used in different hospital systems to redesign, like you said, the clinical workflow. Stuff that intuitively I would have never thought, you know, Toyota in a hospital, like what does that have in common? But Toyota really, really understands how to optimize their workflow. And of course, patients are very different from cars, much more complicated and human beings are much more important than designing cars. But I think just like the abstract principles of, of how you get work done efficiently, there's some overlap there in, in what you can learn from adjacent industries or even non-adjacent industries in this case. The other thing about clinical workflow improvement is that, you know, oftentimes it's not very sexy, right? Like what's sexy is like, what's the latest drug that's been developed for cancer? But process improvement and clinical workflow improvement is, in my sense, you know, lower hanging fruit that can massively improve outcomes without necessarily infusing, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars into something. It's low tech, it's less sexy, but it can be just as important. You know, I wanted to finish off, we, we discussed all these amazing aspects of, of your career and really your life. I wanted to finish us off by discussing, you know, medical education. You've been one of the course directors for several different classes, but one's on global health informatics to improve the quality of care and one for collaborative data science and medicine at MIT. Your textbook, as Alex mentioned earlier, Secondary Analysis of Electronic Health Records, that's been downloaded. My last sense was it's been downloaded over a million times and has been translated into Mandarin, Spanish, Korean, and Portuguese. And these books and courses are incredible resources for curious MDs to check out and broaden their scope of how physicians can have impact. But, you know, how do you think in your experiences, not just in the Philippines, but also New Zealand and also in the U.S. at various different medical and clinical institutions, how do you think medical education in its current form is doing in creating physicians for the 21st century? And, and how do you think it can improve to ensure that physicians aren't left behind in a world of ever-changing innovation? I mean, we need to disrupt the way we're training uh, doctors and nurses now. Uh, the way we have done it is to arm a doctor or nurse with all the skills that he or she would need to be able to take care of the patient in the specialty that he is or she is training for. And what we understand is that, especially in data science, it's a team sport, that not one person will be able to have all the expertise and all the perspectives to address a particular problem. So the courses that we teach at MIT, we deliberately reach out across schools, across departments, make sure that we have a wide spectrum of expertise and a wide spectrum of even seniority who take our classes. So we would have professors take our class uh, and, and uh, or joining with teams of undergraduate computer science students. So we feel that this is required if we are going to advance health informatics, if we're going to advance uh, data science. Uh, this idea that this is a multidisciplinary uh, endeavor uh, that 
no one will be able to get all the skills that is needed to even be able to address what looks like a low-hanging fruit in healthcare, uh, no matter how I have uh, come to learn about all these new um, techniques and methodologies for computer vision or natural language processing, I know that every single project I will need to work with someone who's doing it full time. And I think that that should also be the mindset that we are teaching our our learners, that in the end, uh, what they really need to do is to have some high-level understanding, um, but they should focus on what can they teach the other people in the team, and they should focus on what can they learn from the others in the team. Um, And if that mindset is adopted, I think we're going to be more successful in trying to overhaul the healthcare system that we have been talking about in the last half an hour. So this idea of, we call it village mentoring and hive learning. So the idea that a single startup company, no offense, a single organization uh, will have all the expertise that is needed to tackle one important problem in healthcare, I think is AI, arrogant and ignorant. You need teams of teams. You need people with the right perspectives too. So what we want would be healthcare entrepreneurs to be more inclusive as well. So one of our projects is looking at what is the composition of the healthcare entrepreneurial community. If they are all Ivy League uh, products, then chances are we won't be able to solve the problems of healthcare because they just don't understand. They don't bear the, the burden of health and disease. And we need to reach out more to bring in um, our colleagues from minority-serving institutions to be part of the entrepreneurial community because they have a better understanding of of what the problems are. But again, this has been the way we have been doing things. This is a a, a problem of academia. This is a problem of the uh, entrepreneurial community. Uh, We have been much more exclusive than we ought to be. And somehow... We cannot just ask them later on, what do you think of this MVP? This is going to be working for you. Or you cannot just perform a one-hour interview with someone who has diabetes, who has two jobs during the day, and for that reason is not able to control their blood sugar. They need to be on the table designing the solution with you. And of course, that's, again, easier said than done because the infrastructure that is set up right now is still very supportive of the status quo. And for that reason, um, I don't think we're going to make any headway unless we change, we extend the table to bring in more people uh, and we truly make them a part of the community that is trying to disrupt the way we deliver care. No, Leo, that really resonates a lot. I really love your focus on multidisciplinary collaboration. It's something that is given lip service to a lot, but never really implemented well. We're still all in our silos thinking that our perspective is the best. And I think that's pretty value destructive, especially in healthcare, where it's so important to to create value because patients' lives are in line. Ultimately, as you said before, if there's only clinicians in the room, 
there's only one type of perspective and you, you certainly need the right perspectives, but you also need diverse perspectives because that's one of the reasons why I really liked, you know, the last two years here, here in the business school, because you had people who are investors, consultants, doctors, lawyers, who all think about healthcare, but from slightly different angles and often very different angles, being in a small campus and just talking to one another and trying to sort of move the healthcare for world forward. You don't need to come to business school to do that. That's just one of like a hundred ways you can engage with, with a very diverse ecosystem. But I think it requires folks to be active in their outreach because if you're passive, you just end up talking to people who are in your small sort of insular network. And like we said, innovation doesn't really happen when when that's the case. That this was a, go ahead, Leo. a little bit on that because I, I still think that most business schools, they look diverse in appearance, but they're not truly diverse. Their lived experiences are still very much lacking in the perspective that we need to overhaul healthcare. So uh, that, that's another interest of ours is can, can we uh, diversify, truly diversify the business schools? So not having, not, having different expertise is not enough. Uh, the, the perspectives are harder to, so this is really cognitive diversity that we talk, we are talking about. It's not just the expertise, but the lived experiences. And I think no business school in the world, well, no school in the world, uh, would truly would have that sort of, um, of mix among their faculty and students. And I don't know, this is a very difficult problem because as I said, each organization is trying to be prestigious and trying to be uh, trying to differentiate differentiate themselves from the rest of the world, trying to convince the rest of the world that we're smarter than them. So I keep saying that at MIT we're not smarter than you. We're smarter with you. We can only be smart if we are working with you. Um, a lot of people come to MIT to prove that they're smarter than the rest of the world. We're here at MIT to prove to the world that they're actually as smart as MIT. And, and that's a tough job to, uh, to, to do. But I think it's, it's very worthwhile. It's very invigorating to have that mindset uh, and to convince our partners, our colleagues from around the world that they are MIT material. They are Harvard material. It's primarily trying to um, engender the ecosystem that would allow them to really optimize their potential and one key ingredient of that is connecting the different um, perspectives, connecting the different expertise. We take it for granted. It's very easy here in Boston and Cambridge to really like, reach out across the river and, and make sure you form those connections. But those are very challenging in other parts of the world, especially in resource-limited setting where a hierarchical infrastructure is very much the, uh, the rule rather than exception bringing the clinicians, the nurses, and the doctors, and the pharmacists to work with computer scientists and engineers and social scientists, it's a major task. And it's very, very exhausting to do in other uh, countries. But we need to do it. I think that's the only way that we will be able to achieve our, uh, our, our mission and our vision. Yeah, no, Leo, I appreciate that sort of candor. I think as I reflect back on sort of the so-called diversity of experiences that I've encountered through my various professional schooling, there's some patterns that emerge, right? So like, let's take the last two years. HBS is 
very diverse from international perspective. It's about 40, 45% international, also diverse from an expertise perspective. But when you start talking about real lived experience, at least from the perspective of like socioeconomic background, and certainly the diversity there diminishes drastically. There's this saying that some of us say here at HBS, which is that, you know, I'll pick my country. The Bangladeshis at HBS are more like the Americans at HBS than they are like the Bangladeshis in Bangladesh. And that's obviously a shame, like a big, big shame. And how do you create an environment where you have diversity of thought, experiences, and expertise, but also fundamentally have people from all walks of life who, who think very, very differently about core issues? That's the greatest challenge and, and, and a challenge that hopefully, you know, I know we won't solve through a 45-minute podcast episode, but I'm glad we're having these conversations just to finish this off, Leo, you know, how can our audience learn more about, you know, what you're doing and follow the impact that you've had over your career and will continue to have moving forward? So we do have uh, social media accounts, uh, MIT Critical Data. We post our upcoming events. We post our research output uh, through um, LinkedIn and, and Facebook and Instagram. Um, we have a website, but our website is really, really outdated. We're hoping that it's hard to keep up with uh, the, the work that we do as well as the events that we're organizing, but we're hoping to um, really uh, provide the, the website, which is mitcriticaldata.edu, I believe, so that the information there is updated. And we'd love to see you. Uh, we have planned events, uh, one every month in a different country, until December of next year already. So we will be in all the continents. Uh, I'm hoping to go to Antarctica actually in uh, December of 2023. So that's the last, uh, what do you call this continent that we have yet to organize an event in, but uh, we will be in Asia, we will be in Latam, we will be in Africa, in Europe, in the Middle East uh, at some point over the next 18 months. And we'd love to see you there. I love that, Leo. You're leaving no stone unturned. And next time we invite you back on, you know, you'll be taking the podcast from the moon or something like you're just, so looking forward, looking forward to that. And everyone, you know, highly recommend checking out all of Leo's books and all the impact that he's had at MIT and beyond. Thank you again, Leo, for joining us and excited to have you back on down the line. Pleasure. Thank you. Chad, that was a great conversation with Leo. I really enjoyed it. My main takeaway is around the point of potential avenues for value creation in healthcare. You know, it's always sexy to work on the new drug or the new digital health tool. But I think what many people don't realize is that there is massive, massive value to be created by improving routine clinical workflow and clinical processes. Right. So think about it this way. Like if we improve the process of discharge by 0.5 percent, that is a massive value that has been created. Because just think about how many patients are discharged out of the hospital around the world every day. And I think this links to the point that we've discussed with Vivian Lee and Iman Abu Zaid, that there is a lot of value for innovation and disruption 
and the back office operations that happen in healthcare, be it like on the billing side or being on the recruiting side. I, I wanted to kind of double down on this point just to kind of help the audience think about kind of potential avenues for value creation that they can pursue. Over to you. Great. Thank you, Alex. I really, really appreciate that point. What I wanted to talk about is perspectives. Leo mentioned perspectives numerous times during our conversation, but he talked about how important it is to think creatively and in a fresh manner about old problems, right? That's how seemingly unsolvable problems get solved. I remember in one of our classes, we read some research that shows that most problems that are fundamental to certain fields right now have been solved in some way or shape or form in a different field or industry. It's just the lack of flow of information between these siloed sectors that prevent these problems from being solved on our sector, whether it be healthcare, manufacturing, whatever it is. And I think a way to solve this is to speak to many different types of people. You know, if we only talk to clinicians, we only hear perspectives that are similar to ours. And we only think of solutions from a singular point of view. But I think to solve these seemingly unsolvable problems, as Leo mentioned, we need to surround ourselves with people who think differently. And if you're in that environment where people from very different perspectives or expertises come together in a team with a relatively open mind, curious to learn from one another, then I think magical things can happen and a lot of these problems and barriers can be broken down. So that was my takeaway from this conversation and over to you, Alex, to finish us off. Awesome. Thank you, Shad. That's a great takeaway. And I completely agree with all the points that you've mentioned. And I think that concludes our episode for today. For the audience out there, join us next episode for more conversations with really amazing physicians who ventured off the beaten path. And remember to follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at POTBB Podcast. And to catch our latest podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. To get in touch with us or to send us your recommendations, you can email us at physiciansofthebeatenpath at gmail.com. Visit our website at potbbpodcast.com or just drop us a message to me, Shad, or the page on social media. See you soon.